Welcome to Health to Be Determined, a podcast about the social determinants of health. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Gabriel Kaplan, board president of the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors. Dr. Kaplan interviews Dr. Douglas Judy, executive director of the Build Healthy Places Network. Together, they discuss the relationship between housing, the physical resources located in the community, and the lack of economic opportunity and health. Hello, today we're speaking with Dr. Doug Judy, who is the Executive Director of the Build Healthy Places Network, which is a national organization that catalyzes and supports collaboration across the sectors of community development and health with the goal of increasing investment in low-income neighborhoods, maximizing the health benefits of these investments, and improving health outcomes. Dr. Judy uh, was previously working as a pediatrician and currently sits on the Board of Trustees for Mercy Housing, a national nonprofit affordable housing developer, and the Board of Directors for the Mercy Loan Fund and National CDFI, and we'll learn more about what those are today in our conversation with him. Dr. Judy, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate uh, your time. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So if you could, can you provide our listeners with a brief overview of the community development world, where these funds come from, and why these entities exist and have been created by communities and different levels of government? Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. So I didn't know about this whole field as a pediatrician, as a public health professional. And in short, what I learned, and I'll tell you a little bit more detail, but uh, this whole sector, this this mature industry with thousands of organizations are basically focused on reducing poverty and improving uh, low-income neighborhoods to improve the uh, opportunities for living there. And the insight that, that I had and that we're working on is that the work that these organizations do is addressing social determinants of health, improving them and thus improving health. And so there's a there's a health ROI, a health return on investment, which has made it actually really easy to work across sectors. In short, the community development sector really is those, if you ever wonder how a grocery store gets built in a low-income neighborhood or how affordable housing gets built somewhere where there's a, a housing shortage or how a charter school gets built in a neighborhood, it's often these organizations, the community development sector. And the, the different types of organizations really arose out of the war on poverty back in the 60s. So most of them date back to the 60s to the uh, late 80s, early 90s. So they've been around for a long time. And the main players I sort of think of in three different categories. Uh, The first are the uh, community development financial institutions. They go by CDFIs. These are effectively nonprofit banks is the easiest way to think about it. So these are financial institutions that are not only willing, they are by charter required to make investments into neighborhoods that regular banks won't touch. So they have to invest in low-income neighborhoods. And they're particularly skilled at weaving together uh, funding from a variety of sources to make them available at the neighborhood level. The second major group are uh, CDCs, Community Development Corporations. So you can imagine the confusion that arises when you talk about CDCs uh, with uh, the health, uh, health audience who's thinking about the place in Atlanta. But community development corporations are grassroots, often local neighborhood level organizations that are really on the ground and working with the community um, or, or are represented by the community, really, that help identify where are the needs. And the, the amazing thing to me is there are probably about, I think at last count, around 1,100, maybe even 1,200 CDFIs, these nonprofit banks, 1,200. 200 of them across the country. And I think there's about over 4,000 CDCs across the country. So they're really in every neighborhood. 
which I think is an exciting thing as a, as a health person, is that this is not some type of organization that only exists on the East Coast or only exists on the West Coast or, or you know, it's really, they're really everywhere. And the third major group are the um, affordable housing developers. And most of them are nonprofit. There are a few for-profit, but again, mission-driven, focused on building affordable housing for low-income people. And uh, their particular expertise is on housing. And so you can imagine how the CDFIs that do the financing, the CDCs with their community, local community groups, and the affordable housing developers all kind of intersect and interact around a, uh, a given effort. That's great. But Gabriel, I think the other thing was the money. So is that what you wanted to hear about where the money comes from too or how big this is? Yeah. So if you could tell our audience a little bit about where these funds come from, uh, why these entities, you know, exist and, and also just yeah. mention that government sort of plays a role here. Exactly. No, government plays a huge role. So this, I think the second striking thing, so first is the sheer number of these organizations and the fact that they've been around for decades and are very successful in the work that they do. The second is the sheer scale. Uh, about $200 billion a year are invested annually into low-income neighborhoods through the community development industry. A lot of this money comes to the federal government in the form of tax credits. So what's interesting about that is it's not in the budget. This is through the uh, IRS. And it engages for-profit companies that are getting tax credits off of their tax bills, but provides that money to uh, low-income neighborhoods and low, uh, organizations working in low-income neighborhoods. So, for example, the low-income housing tax credit has built the majority, has sub subsidized the majority of affordable housing built over the last 40 years. In addition, there's a new market tax credit, uh, which is uh, used to uh, support small businesses and smart businesses in low-income neighborhoods. There's also the Healthy Food Financing Initiative, which is uh, federal dollars used to build grocery stores in um, low-income neighborhoods and food deserts. and But the bulk, I guess, so that, that's federal dollars. There's also state-level uh, funding that often mirrors these federal dollars. But the bulk of the money actually comes from for-profit banks, which I think is a surprise to a lot of people. And the for-profit banks have to make these investments in the low-income neighborhoods as a result of legislation called the Community Reinvestment Act. It was a law passed in the late 70s and was really fully implemented by the late 80s, early 90s. And it's specifically an anti-red Law. And so there's a lot of talk recently about redlining as a primary driver of some of the health and wealth disparities that we see in the country, which is absolutely true. But I think something that's sometimes not understood by our colleagues in health is that there has been immense effort to overturn that redlining over the last uh, 30 years through the Community Reinvestment Act. And so banks are required, and they're regulated on this, to demonstrate that they're providing low-income loans and other forms of uh, resources, financial resources, into low-income neighborhoods. So that's really uh, the bulk of this $200 billion a year. That's great. You know, one of the things that you've mentioned is this, is this issue of redlining, and there's a, a fabulous display that's actually making its way around the country right now and uh, is available online, which is called uh, Redesign the Red Line and, or Undesign the Red Line, and really talk about the impact that redlining had on neighborhoods uh, over the mm -hmm. last century and the role, unfortunately, that the federal government played in really stimulating red the whole challenge of redlining initially yeah. and how yeah. the CRA sort of sort of begins efforts to try to roll that back. I think uh, what's really great about these resources that you've described is one of the things that we really struggle with in public health is where do we find the resources to do this work? And what you're highlighting is that for a lot of our communities, uh, there are resources available and that the money that we can bring is really sort of something that can sweeten the pot exactly. and we can play an important role braiding and connecting opportunities and, and folks who have 
have resources, but people don't need to think that they're going to be challenged with raising the full cost of building a housing development. But can you give our listeners a sense of the scale of this work and these investments relative to the need and the overall level of finance activity in areas of housing and economic development nationally? I think what's most shocking is the the scale is, is, is large. Now, arguably, it's not large enough because we haven't solved the problem, obviously. But I think I think that is, in my opinion, due to two reasons. One is, even though, as I mentioned, the 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 total dollars, the estimate is somewhere between two hundred billion dollars a year, and some have said as uh, there was a recent report uh, suggesting it may be as much as four hundred billion dollars a year being invested nationally. The trouble is, the scale of the problem is so big that. Even that amount of money just doesn't touch the, uh, as you said, decades of disinvestment that happened. I think the second problem that it runs into, and this actually is a critical point around the role of public health in supporting or, or, or maximizing the impact of these dollars, is that a lot of the money is going in, how would I say, uh, hit, uh, hit and miss. It's not, it's not going in in a systematic way. And what we know from for health is that health requires that sort of everything be functioning simultaneously. So if you just build housing, which is a lot of what the community development sector has focused on over the uh, recent decades, mostly because it's a straightforward real estate deal, housing by itself isn't going to solve chronic problems. It's not going to solve chronic poverty. Poverty, it is a step in the right direction, but if the schools are terrible, if there's not a grocery store nearby, if there's not accessible transportation or reasonable jobs nearby, it really doesn't have the impact. In fact, I tell my community development colleagues that it's almost like sprinkling vaccination over a neighborhood and hoping for the best, as opposed to really being thoughtful about what is the order in which you provide these resources, what is the dose that's necessary to provide these resources, and are you giving them at the right time and to the right neighborhoods? Not Poverty is not the same in all places. And so I think there's a real opportunity for the public health sector to help align and coordinate some of these sometimes relatively large-scale dollar resources that are coming into these low-income neighborhoods that we are unfortunately often unaware of. Yeah. You know, it, what you mention really resonates with some of the things we've heard so far in this podcast series. You know, Public Health 3.0, we spoke to Karen DeSalvo and she talks mm-hmm. in that article about the concept of public health as a convener. And we've also talked with uh, Tony Eiten and he mentions that uh, you really have to let the community lead because it knows best what it needs first. But it really exactly. calls for that public health role to bring together a comprehensive effort to recognize that the social determinants of health are myriad and multiple. And they're Mm -hmm. only going to bend before a comprehensive approach that really tries to address all of them in some kind of comprehensive, coordinated fashion. Uh, Because we really have to repair the entire environment if we're going to create conditions for people to pursue their best health. Well, you know, what's interesting about that is the... Is, and what's been exciting for me in this work is that those on the community development side, those with these other resources, are actually driving towards the same goals, which is better functioning neighborhoods, healthier residents, and greater opportunity for the children and families and individuals in these neighborhoods. They have the same goals. They have very different approaches, right? It's often through real estate and it's through uh, developing uh, buildings and infrastructure, but with the goal of serving those individuals. And so if one approaches them and said to say, we can help you achieve your goals more effectively or more efficiently or at greater scale, they're all over that. Like, they're ready and excited to partner. This is not about dragging people to the table. This is about saying these are this is some information we know about human development and about the underlying causes of poverty that they 
are more than willing to think about how their resources can be used in a way that will be most effective. So I think that's been one of the most fun things about working with the sector. Right. You mentioned in a chapter in the Practical Playbook that the current level of this kind of investment is quite small compared to the need and that a lot of it is one-off projects. How can Mm -hmm. this kind of work take place as part of a broader, more integrated plan to help transform a community? Are there examples of that? Yeah. I mean, it really, a lot of it really is a matter. It's it's, it's actually, as you suggested, you know, the fact that Karen, the Salvo mentioned a convening role, I think is an interesting one. One example that I've seen that has been particularly effective is, uh, and, and this this is a, a model that, it's a specific organization, this is purpose-built communities, but what I like is the model that really could be applicable beyond just that particular organization. The reason I mentioned purpose-built is because their approach is inherently comprehensive. So if you haven't heard of them, they're an organization, nonprofit based in Atlanta that provides long-term free consultation advisory services for supporting neighborhoods that are interested in trying to do comprehensive reinvestments, a redevelopment of their neighborhood while keeping residents there. There's a real focus because early efforts uh, resulted in a lot of displacement. There's a real effort to keep people in place. They're working in, uh, there's at least 25 communities that are part, uh, active parts of their network, but they are working with another 50 or so across the country. And there are two main, well, actually three main components that I find really interesting. And again, not not that it's just about this particular uh, purpose-built effort, but rather it's applicable, I think, to many uh, communities and to your question. One is that they focus on three main pillars, affordable housing, mixed income housing, actually. So uh, diluting poverty, but providing affordable housing. Second is making sure the education system is really strong so that children can break out of these neighborhoods and succeed. And the third is sort of what's called community health, but it really is, I think those of us in public health would think about um, the broader all the other good stuff, right? Like having grocery stores, having parks to play in, having a bank branch, having uh, perhaps a doctor's office nearby, all of the stuff that we take for granted in middle-income neighborhoods. But they, they focus on those simultaneously, which is getting to your point. You have to do them at once. The other key, two key components, which I think set that effort slightly apart from others, one is they define a specific geography. So it's an actual functional neighborhood. A line can be drawn around. And what that means is everybody in that neighborhood is the responsibility of the effort. So rather Rather than programmatic solutions that sometimes result in increasing disparities, in my opinion. So great things like Head Start require a family to have the wherewithal to know that there is a Head Start program to get their child signed up and to get them there every day. That is a big lift for some families. And in fact, the worst off families may not uh, succeed, which can actually worsen the disparities between those that are doing better and those that are doing worse. But what they call the secret sauce of this approach, this is kind of getting really to the meat of your question, is a community quarterback. And a community quarterback is a usually a new freestanding 501c3 nonprofit, so often quite small, two, three, five, seven people, whose sole job is coordinating all the different threads and ideas so that the affordable housing is happening at the same time the grocery store is happening, the same time as the school is being improved, same time that the community clinic is being built or expanded, making sure the bus routes provide what's needed for that neighborhood. And they represent, they have boards that represent the community itself and the other stakeholders. And so I think what we're often missing, this again related to the convening that uh, Dr. DeSalvo mentioned, there's a coordination component that I think really we're not, we're not tackling properly. And and focusing and making sure you're thinking about everybody in your neighborhood and that needs will vary over time, resources vary over time, but somebody whose primary focus every day is focusing on how to make sure everything's working as well as possible in that neighborhood is a key component and something I think we need to think more about how we finance and fund and support because it doesn't take a lot of people. 
It's really about making sure these resources are aligned. And as I said, you know, that's where, uh, you know, affordable housing developers and others with all this community development money, how do we link it to health? That would be one way to do that. So there's a lot of concern in communities that are transitioning in areas of growth and urban mm-hmm. development around the negative consequences of gentrification. How can communities make the kind of rehabilitation investments that are needed to improve health without touching off of a wave of gentrification that ends up excluding those who would most benefit from investment mm-hmm. and increased opportunity? Yeah, no, it's a huge concern. And uh, two thoughts about that. One is most of the country is not at risk of gentrification. I think that's a key point that we often forget. There are a lot of very prominent places. All the major cities on the coasts are at huge risk of gentrification. But Akron, Ohio is not at risk of gentrification. Dayton, Ohio, where, which is where I grew up near there. Davenport, Iowa. Uh, you know, there's a lot of places that have been disinvested. Uh, Swathen, Milwaukee. You know, you think about uh, Spartanburg, South Carolina. These are not places that are at risk of gentrification. And so sometimes the fear of gentrification can um, prevent meaningful and important investment. However, to your point, there are a lot of places that are at huge risk of gentrification all along the coast. You know, I live in the Bay Area, so Oakland is just being uh, crushed right now. The key in my mind, interestingly, is actually bringing in these community development partners sooner rather than later. Because again, they're mission-driven and if you, the key, and if you, and I've actually reviewed a lot of the gentrification literature, the key is creating affordability in the setting of gentrification. Who does that? Mission-driven community development organizations. So you mentioned earlier, I'm the board of Mercy Housing, which is the largest afford, uh, nonprofit affordable housing developer in the country. Mercy is ready and willing to come in and excited to build housing that will be permanently affordable because it's their own portfolio. The nuns are not going to let it become too expensive for the local uh, residents. And so bringing in players like that who have some of their own resources but could also align with local resources is I think one of the key ways and so in general I think there's sometimes a misunderstanding of development which leads to gentrification and community development that is actually mission driven and is one of the most effective ways of preventing the displacement that will come with uh, increasing housing costs in particular. That's great. So for our listeners who want to get started with this uh, where do they begin? Uh, How do they learn about and explore this world of the other CDCs and where should they start in their mm-hmm. communities? Well, of course, I've spent the last, the Build Healthy Places Network's about five years old, and, and that type of audience you're talking about is exactly our audience. And so a couple places. One, you mentioned the Practical Playbook. That's available online for free, and I have a chapter in there that was written specifically for an audience like this about summarizing, I think, in about 12, 16 pages, community development. So I think that's a particularly, it was really basically designed for, for the exact audience you're talking about. And second, I guess, really from, you know, from my own perspective is a lot of the materials I have on our own website, so buildhealthyplaces.org, are for this audience. So we have essays that summarize interesting stories. There's, we have a gentrification essay. We have examples of children's hospitals investing in neighborhoods. Um, we also have a series of case studies that could be valuable, a jargon buster we put together to really help understand CDCs versus DCDC. There's also a partner finder, which is, I think, maybe the uh, another important tool that we created that helps an individual identify which of these local CDCs, community development corporations, sit nearby, which CDFIs, the community development financial institutions are nearby. Because the beauty is each of these organizations has a CEO or an executive director who'd be more than happy to have a doctor or a public health professional give them a call and be like, what are you doing in our neighborhood? How can I work with you? 
how can you work with me? So I think those are some initial ideas. That's great. So for our listeners, that's uh, buildhealthyplaces.org. I really recommend it. I'm actually looking at the homepage now, and I can see that there are all kinds of resources and jumping off points uh, to the NeighborWorks America, uh, Your Playbook, Principles for the Field, Community Development 101, Community Close-Ups, Discussions about Early Childhood, and Discussions about Your Network and Who's in That, and the Network Common Series, which is really useful. So both of those are really great places to start. Dr. Judy, thank you so much for your time today. I really encourage our listeners to explore this world that you are in the middle of uh, and to seek out those folks in their communities who are doing this CDC work, this community development corporation work, uh, and begin to have conversations about what they need, uh, how they can be supported, and what we can bring to the table uh, that will help galvanize and accelerate those efforts. So thanks so much for your time. Great. I appreciate it. And I look forward to have anybody reach out anytime. We're, we're happy to talk further. Great. Thank you for listening to Health to be Determined, a podcast brought to you by the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors. Please visit www.chronicdisease.org to listen to more podcasts like this one.